This is a recording of the speech on Shabbos Day, Parshas Vayera, Tavshin, Pei Dalad. Shabbos. Like many people here, I have found it very difficult to maintain my normal levels of productivity over the last month. I am too obsessed with following what's going on and I get some solace. I take some solace in this week's Sedra. The Torah tells us that after Saddam was destroyed, the Pasuk tells us, Avram Avinu went to the place Asher Omar Hashem, he went to the place where Yadavan to Hashem to save Saddam and then he went there by and he sees the destruction. Vashkif, we know, is not a is not a great lush and appears earlier in the Sedra and Parsvayu and the, the Malachim were were um Vashkif up in a Sadaim. They looked at Sadaim before they went there. We know in, in two weeks from now, Sedra and Parsha's uh told us we're gonna have Vayashkif, Abimelch Balach Alain. Right. The only Ashkifa that's actually uh, a good thing is in Pashaski. That's why we raise our voice and lean that one out loud. In any event, we see that Avram Avinu, he already davened. He knew that Felix wasn't going to be answered. So why is he going to check out what happened? Because he cared. He cared about the people in Sudan, he cared about his nephew. He had a shaykhism. When we care, we want to know what happened. We want to understand what's going on. And the same like us, our family, our brothers and sisters are in ace sorrow now. So we care. Like in previous weeks, I would like to share with you a drush in relation to something that inspired me that I saw Friday afternoon right before Shabbos. I didn't have a chance to watch the whole thing. But I'm going to tell you a snippet, at least the first couple of minutes that I did see. It took place in London. I assume in this week or last week. Hasidah Shayid is standing at a speaker's corner. I don't know if there are speaker's corner in America. Maybe maybe at certain universities. I'm not sure. But a speaker's corner... There's an idea that you go to the, the speaker's corner and people come and to talk to you, to engage you about whatever it is that you want to speak about. This Hasidah Shiyid, I'm not sure if he's from Stanford Hill, where he's from, but I think this took place in London. They, in London, the Hasidah Shiyid, they speak good English. It's not like in America where it's the second language. There, many of them speak very, very good English. And he's standing there in the speaker's corner surrounded by, I don't know, it seems like at least 20, 30, maybe more, people of all sorts of uh, persuasions, ethnicities, and they're yelling at him. Some people are asking him questions about what's going on at Israel. And he is resolute. He's standing his ground, attempting to get a word in edgewise if he, they let him. So the people who scream at him, he doesn't look, I can't, I can't respond if you scream. If you want to talk to me, I'll respond to you. And some people are asking questions in a more normative way. And he responds to them normatively. He pulls no punches. He's very 
confident in his answers and he speaks the truth. And they reminded me that this Yiddel was combating what Solomon Shafter referred to 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago already, as a higher form of anti-Semitism. When it comes to anti-Semitism, there are two forms. There's the lower form of anti-Semitism, that's the form of, I see a Jew, I'm going to go beat up that Jew, I'm going to kill the Jew, I'm going to do whatever I can to harm and hurt that Jew. That's a lower form of anti-Semitism. The higher form of anti-Semitism attempts not merely or maybe doesn't ever attempt to hurt the Jew in a physical way, but in a sense, attempts to hurt the Jew in a much worse way, intellectually, philosophically. Shalom Shafter was talking at the time about Julius Wellenhausen. He was a, uh, a Bible scholar who came up with the idea of what we know today as higher Bible criticism, the idea that there were multiple authors of the Torah. So Julius Wellenhausen, he probably never heard a Jew physically in his entire life. But he created an, uh, an area, of a body of thought, of work, that is still going on today. Namely, the idea that the Torah was not written by Kodesh Baruch Hu, was not given to Meshur Rabbeinu, that this Torah is, as it were, the fruit of multiple authors and generations, etc. What does that do? Well, that undercuts the basics of Yah does in itself. If the Torah is not legitimate, then what do we have a leg to stand on at all? That's a higher form of anti-Semitism. It doesn't hurt the Jew in a physical way, but it destroys the Jewish people in a much broader way by saying that there's nothing about Yah that's any longer connected to Revelation, connected to HaKadosh Baruch What I would like to discuss today is the responses to higher forms of anti-Semitism. The response to the lower forms of anti-Semitism is self-defense, is the ability to defend oneself. But the higher form of anti-Semitism requires knowledge. It requires being fluent in the anti-Semitism being engaged in by our interlocutors. To be clear, the religions spawned by Yadus, including Christianity and Islam, engage in challenging the very essence of what Yadus stands for. But they do it in different ways. For example, in Christianity, there's something known as supersessionism, replacement theology. What that means is, in effect, what we talk about Basroi. When we say Hilchasaka Basroi, what do we say that Allah is like the later person? We say that Allah is like a later authority, even if he's nobody, even if he's a dwarf, because he's a dwarf standing on the shoulders of a giant, which, by the way, as I pointed out on a Friday night a few years ago, is not actually uh, sourced uh, as, as a Jewish quote. Its origins are Greek, but it nevertheless works. And from the times of Rishayim, Jewish authorities, Jewish Rishayim and Achorinim, they have adopted it. The dwarf on the shoulders of the giant is a good way of explaining Basroi. That is to say, sure, I'm nothing compared to the giants who I'm standing on. Because I'm standing on a giant, they get a chance to see even broader. So therefore, we go like the Basroi, because the Basroi had a chance to figure out all the older opinions and make a better approach, better solution as to which approach to take. Christians said Christian theology was supersessionist. They said that not Yavis was wrong. Yavis was right. But it was superseded by the Basroi. It was superseded by the revelation to Yeshu. 
This is the approach of Christianity. In Islam, they also have an idea of supersessionism. They're not simply superseding Judaism. They also have to supersede Christianity. So each one has an idea that they're the Basroi. One is just the Basroi of Yadus, the other one is the Basroi of Yadus, and also the Neutrum, also the Christians. Now, admittedly, the Christians have an additional aspect that for many years, although now it's not um, required to believe that, because the, the Pope took this away, but for many years, they also blamed the Jews for having killed Yeshu which is in addition to the supersessionism. It's not merely that they rejected the issue. It's not merely that they replaced Yados, but also that they have an, another taina against the Jewish people, namely that we supposedly killed the issue. That is on the Christian side of things. What about on the Islamic side of things? So you mentioned the supersessionism, of course. And remember that from Islam, they take the idea that Yados was already superseded by Christianity. So they're superseding, they don't have to supersede Yadus. It's already superseded, but they're superseding it again, and they're superseding Christianity. Okay. But there's another aspect that Islam engages in. There's another aspect that's mentioned in the Quran a number of times about the Jewish people, and that is tarif. That is the idea that the Jewish people altered the text of the Torah to fit with their agenda. What this does is something very different than what Christianity does. What Christianity does by saying that the Jews are superseded says that, look, yeah, this was good. It was good for a thousand years. It was good for 1,500 years, whatever. It was good for a time. But now it's over. Now, yeah, this is superseded. We have a new religion. We only have to follow the moral code. We only have to follow the Ten Commandments, whatever. The rest of the ceremonial laws and the ritual laws, all that can be done away with. Now we have Yeshua to rely. We don't need any of that. So that's the idea of Christianity. But they're not tining that the understanding that was brought down in Tereshev Aksav was not, in fact, from the Tereshev Aksav. That wasn't Tereshev Aksav. They're not saying that the Tereshev Aksav was not correct. Islam is not that way. Islam not merely engages in superseding Yadus, but they also say that the Jewish people engage in Tarif. Tarif means that we altered the text of the Torah to suit our means, to suit our agenda. And the Quran mentions this a number of times. And this is a thing that was taken up by uh, Islamic scholars over the centuries. For example, the Quran, Mamish in the second surah, which is their version of the Paragin, says to the Jewish people, don't mix truth with falsehood or hide the truth knowingly. And if you look at the Mepharshim there in the Quran, they say that's because the Jewish people changed the text of the Torah. What does it mean that they changed the text of the Torah? Where are we talking about that they changed the text of the Torah? It's Haidi Gesedra. Haidi Gesedra, Parashas Vayera, is all about the Akedah. <clears throat> and the Quran, in the Surah 37, discusses the Akedah. And it doesn't say that Yishmael was Neka. It doesn't say that Ishmael was the one who was put on the Akedah. But you have to read the whole Surah, because first of all, it looks like it came straight out of the Lul says. Literally, Muhammad took the Midrashim. Literally. Like the Rambam says in the Igris Taman, the Rambam says that the Meshuggah couldn't find any problems with the Torah, says the Rambam. So what did he do instead? He went and argued 
that the text was changed, was altered by the Jews to fit with their agenda. The Ramah writes in the Garis Tema, and you see it in this Surah 37. In the Surah 37, which looks like it came straight out of the Lumen, just says, taken literally, right? it's like that example of the kid right, who took the test. You know the example of the kid who takes the test and, and he gets all these questions right, but he gets a zero on the test. So the teacher says, he says to the teacher, why did I get a zero? I, I got all the questions right. So the teacher says, because you cheated. He says, what are you talking about? So the teacher says, look, you're sitting next to somebody else. You got all the answers like them. And, and all of them are correct. Very good. But one answer, the student, the other student next to you said, I don't know. And you wrote, I don't either. This Surah 37 opens up by saying that Avram Avinu basically went to war against the idols. And he said the idols were fighting with each other. The idols were fighting with each other. And so the people of ur they were very upset what's going on. The idols don't fight. And he said, well, why do you worship them as gods? So they said, away with this person. And they threw him in the Kivshan Aish. And as a result of coming out of the Kivshan Aish alive, right, all this stuff taken literally, as though you were reading the little says. Therefore, Hashem blessed Avram Avinu with his son. That son is named, remains nameless. There is no name given to the son of Avram Avinu. It's just nameless. But then the story continues, and it says that the son grew up, and Avram Avinu receives a revelation from Akkadosh Baruch that says he has to shech the son on an Akeda. So he takes him, and he takes him there, and he tells the son, I have to shech you. Hashem said, and the son says, okay, if that's God's will, that's Beseda. So he's nekad, and he's about to shech him, and what happens is that Hashem comes along and stops him and says, don't shech him. But you pass this incredible ordeal. You pass this incredible test. So therefore, I'm going to reward you. And what's the reward? He has a son, another child named Yitzchak. So this is the way that the Quran doesn't say explicitly that Yitzhak was not Nekad, it was Yishmael instead. But it presents the story with a nameless person being Nekad so that you could surmise that there was no option other than to say it was Yishmael. Because it says that the birth of Yitzhak comes after the Akedah. And you don't say Eibutu Mu'ochah by them. So therefore, that's why it's clear that the Quran is saying that who was the one who was Nekat? It was Yishmael and not Yitzchak. Now, what's mind-boggling about this is, of course, if you don't trust us about who is Nekat, then how can you trust us about everything else that was said there? It's talking there about the creation. It's talking there about Moshe. It's talking there about the kings of Israel, talking there about Yoyna, all the different Nevim, all the different stories of Tanakh. Why should you accept any of that? Only on this one you're not accepting. But the rest of the stories of Tanakh are totally in this one. And that's the part here. This tariff, this idea that the Jews altered the text to fit them, it's because who was Yitzchak? Yitzchak is the, the, the Torah tells us we're not merely losing 
Rosh Hashanah if we don't have the Akeda. It's not merely losing the Gemara in the end of Shabbos that tells us that Yitzchak is going to be the one who saves the Jewish people. Us and Lava is going to be Sichar Kodesh Baruch Hu to save the Jewish No, no, that's not what we're losing. What we're losing if Yitzchak is not Nekan is what we're saying is that really Yitzchak is not the heir. He's not the one who is the chosen one between the sons of Avraham Avinu. As Bincha's Yitzchak is not referring to Yitzchak, it's referring to Yishmael. That means then that your trajectory, the heir of the Jewish people, is not Yitzchak. The heir to Avram, I'm sorry, the heir to Avram Avinu was not Yitzchak, it was Yishmael. And this is a different form of anti-Semitism. This is a notion of undercutting. The very tenets of Yadus, of taking away these parshias, of taking away parshias Lechukhan, Vayir, and Chayisar, told us and saying that all of it is not true. It's by definition altered. It's by definition not relevant. A lie promulgated by the Jews. Somehow the lie wasn't realized for until the until the times of um, Islam, which is literally 2,000 years after it was developed. But, no, that's how they figured it out. And it's this what I want to discuss today. There are many, many, many different clarion calls of anti-Semitism that exist today that on their face, they sound like they're very caring. They sound like they're very sympathetic. They sound like, they sound like they're very sympathetic to human rights. But the reality is they're anti-Semitism writ large and very often propounded and promulgated by ignorance. People, but people do not know anything about history. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to be able to do this in great depth. So I'm going to run through seven. People like the number seven. I'm going to go through seven different examples of commonplace tropes that are, by definition, anti-Semitic, even though they're couched in the language of human rights, they're couched in the language of caring, and they're couched in the language of chesed. One is in relation to Palestine. We hear the term always discussed, Palestine this, Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. Let's be clear. There was never an independent sovereign state called Palestine in the history of the land between the river and the sea. The land that is between the river and the sea was always a part of another empire. It was never a land governed by Arabs living between the river and the sea called Palestine. Never existed in history. That's number one. You want to say that there was a British mandatory Palestine? Sure, but that was part of the British Empire. The Romans who gave the name to the land between the river and the sea, and they called it Palestine. That was as part of the parcel of their attempt to squelch the rebellion of the Jews, especially after the times of the Barkechba rebellion, which took down many Roman garrisons and troops and armies. So in an attempt to expunge the connection of the Jews to the land, they changed the name of the land and they gave it the name of their mortal enemy, the Philistines, the Pelishtim. Where did the Pelishtim live? They lived in Gaza. They lived what we call today Gaza. They had, they had five cities there, five Ari Pelishtim, right? Gaza, Ekroid, Ashkeloid, Ashdod, and Gath. Those are the five cities of the Pelishtim. But the Pelishtim, they were a sea people, came okay, from wherever they came from. But they lived near the water, mostly near the water. Got maybe a little bit more inland, but they lived near the water generally. And the Romans 
gave that name of Palestine to the land of Israel, but there was never any Arab state that was governed solely between the river and the sea. There were empires, that Islamic empires, including the Ottoman Empire, various caliphates, absolutely, that controlled the land of Israel, but there was never an independent country called Palestine in existence. In 1948, when they attempted to partition the land and make a split between the states of Palestine and Israel, that would have been the first time that there would have been a, a country called Palestine. Of course, it was rejected by the Arabs, and between 1947, sorry, 1948 and 1967, that land of Gaza was controlled by Egypt, and the land of what's known today as the West Bank, Houdan Shamron, was controlled by the Jordanians. But there was never an independent Palestinian state in history. That's number one. Number two, the indigenous people. The Arabs claim that the Palestinians are the indigenous people of the land between the river and the sea. That, of course, is a falsehood. The indigenous people, if one wants to call them indigenous people, are people who live in a land. How long or how many years does it take for somebody to become the indigenous people of a land? If it takes 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years? What makes somebody an indigenous person of land? What makes somebody from the first nations of a land? Presumably, it's people who have the history going back the farthest. In theory, if there were Canaanites today, they would have even a longer indigenous claim to the land. The Jews have a far longer claim to being settlers and people who lived in the land of Israel than, of course, the Arabs do. There wasn't an Islam until the 600s, and, of course, the Jews were living there for 1,500 years before that. So the notion that they are the, quote, indigenous people of Palestine, the indigenous people of the land between the river and the sea, is just absolute false. The Jews have even a greater claim to being the indigenous people of Palestine. Third, refugees. Remember that there were Arabs who were expelled. There were Arabs who ran away. During the War of 1948, during the War of Independence, there were certainly Arabs who left, or were expelled, or were transferred, or ran. doesn't make a difference now to get into the details of how many, but the assumption normally is about somewhere between 650 and 750,000. Those people, they came to the lands that is today Gaza, they went to Lebanon, Syria, what's known today as the West Bank, all various different places. And they were not allowed to come back, to return to the land what is known today as Israel. Of course, there were 850,000 Jews that were thrown out of the various lands in the Middle East, Arab lands. But And some people want to say that that is a like for like. But I don't want to discuss that now. What I want to discuss is the fact that there were 850,000 refugees from Arab lands, and there are none today. The fact that there were millions of refugees between India and Pakistan during their partition there in the late 40s, and there are none today. The fact that war always creates millions of refugees and no one is able to keep the refugee status. The reason that the Arabs have been able to continue and become refugees generation after generation, that today there are millions of people who call themselves refugees. How can they be refugees 75 years after the creation of the State of Israel? Presumably many of those 650, 750,000 Arabs, presumably many of them died. How can there be millions of refugees today? Obviously, because Israel's not being very successful in their genocidal campaign against the Arabs. But besides that, it's because the United Nations created something called UNRWA at the behest 
of the various Arab nations who refused to resettle the Arabs living in these various refugee camps after the 48 war, in order to perpetuate the problem, Israel took the refugees from the Arab lands and resettled them into the land of Israel. And so therefore, there are no more refugees. The, the normal situation for refugees is that they resettle in the, norm, in, a, in the new place wherever they are. And that's it. They become citizens of the new place. But because of the fact that there's never been a settlement to the Arab situation, so they're able to hand off their designation as a refugee under the United Nations' very, very unique uh, provision for the people of Palestine, as opposed to any other nation around the world. No one else is able to transfer refugee status. Only you're the refugee. You can't pass it on to your children. But UNRWA was set up to ensure that the Palestinians can pass on their refugee status from generation to generation. So what I say to that is, the Seder Gamor, you want to be a refugee and pass on your status? Why can I be a refugee? Our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents were thrown out of the land of Israel during the Roman occupation. And if you can pass on your status of refugee, so they can pass on their status of refugee. We've been saying L'Shad Abab Yerushalayim for a lot longer than they've been carrying their keys around and saying, this was my house. And so I also want to claim the status of a refugee for the nose. Everybody's familiar, perhaps, with the no, 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 the three no's from Khartoum in Sudan <laughs> that the Arab League said that they're never going to make peace with Israel and never recognize them, etc. But the no's have been happening from the Arab side for generations. There were no's to the Balfour Declaration and no's to the San Remo Conference and no's to the Partition Plan and no's to the willingness of Israel to make peace whether it was in 1993 or in 2000, etc. No, no, no. Repeated rejection. Repeated no. Not willing to actually live in peace. A refusal to countenance the existence of an independent Jewish state anywhere between the land of, and anywhere in the land between the river and the sea. No is this fundamentalist answer that has been heard for 100 plus years in the land of Israel from the Arabs. The Jewish people... Rightly or wrongly, we discussed that last night, whether or not part of Yishev Eretz Yisrael. I don't want to get into redoing that topic now. But certainly, certainly, you're able to say that the leaders of the Jewish people at various different times were willing, maybe not always, but certainly at certain times, were willing to make peace and willing to give up part of the land to be able to live in a fraternal um, uh, peace with their erstwhile cousins, the Arabs, in sharing the land between the river and the sea. Number five, we talk about self-determination. Self-determination, one of the biggest and most commonplace attacks by anti-Semites today is couched in the notion that everybody between the land of the river, between the land of the river to the sea should have a vote, one vote for each person. Minority rights should be protected. One vote for each person, self-determination. What they really say, if you unpack it, is calling, using nice human rights-sounding language, for the expulsion and extermination of the Jewish people. The same way that the Jewish people were never safe in the lands when the, in Europe when the Christians were much more religious, they also were not safe, even though it wasn't to the same degree. They were not safe in the lands of Islam. Were they safer than in the lands of Christianity? Sure, absolutely. But they were only safe in relation to being a dhimmi. They were only safe in relation to being a second-class citizen without the same amount of legal rights as a Muslim. Jewish people also went through blood libels, they went through programs. 
This was not just after 1948. This was before 1948. Well documented. From time to time, things would become unsafe for Jews living within the land of Islam. So Jews, like every other ethnicity, would like to have their own self-determination. Why would it be that it should be self-determination only for one type of people? Which, by definition, is going to make the other type of people be a minority. When you say there should be self-determination, one vote for one person of all the people between the land of the river and the sea, you're saying that it's really only self-determination for one kind of person. And so instead of the 22 Arab countries that we have, we're now going to have to take the little bit of land that was ascribed to the Jews from Morocco to Iran, on the lands of all of the Arab countries. It's just a little tiny speck among that. Forget the Muslim countries are far broader. just the Arab countries. And there's no room for the little democracy, for the vibrant democracy, for the technological superpower that is Israel, because self-determination only works one way. Another ethnicity is not able to get its self-determination. Six, when we talk about the historical Palestine, what we're talking about is the areas where archaeology has found connections of the Jewish people or other peoples in that land. Remember that a lot of the land was never, ever settled. For example, in 1948, when they made the attempted to make the partition of Palestine, one of the complaints that the Arab rejectionists used to say that they don't want the land, uh, they don't want this agreement, this partition doesn't work for them, was because they said the Jews got too much. The Jews got a bigger percentage of the land between the river and the sea than they got. And that is true. The Jews did get a bigger percentage of the land. But, and there's a big but there, and that is that a lot of that land was the Negev. The Negev is a desert. Like the Arabian Peninsula, it's uninhabitable. It's like the Sinai Desert. There's nothing to do there. It's just a vast expanse of sand. Perhaps it was once habitable. Perhaps it was once hospitable millennia ago. I don't know. But certainly, like the Sahara Desert, like the Arabian Peninsula, that whole area there, it's simply nothing to grow on. No one can live there. It's boiling hot. There's no water to drink. So the idea that somehow, by giving Israel the, the Negev Desert, we're giving them a ton of land that was great arable land they could do something with was a joke. But the point is that Israel nevertheless started settlements in some of these places. Do you know that the city of Tel Aviv was started in 1909? It was a sand dune. There was nothing there. Sure, there was Jaffa, which was nearby. But Tel Aviv was started with nothing. There was nothing there. There's no, you know, when you go into Shalom and you dig, you have to always call the 17 archaeologists to come down and check and the other didn't have to be there to make sure the bones are... Why is that? Because of the fact that the connections of the Jewish people to the land of Yehuda and Shemrani, the highlands of Israel, is so deep, it's so pronounced, so profound, that every place that you go, you find more connections. The archaeology is screaming for all those to see of the connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. But Tel Aviv, there's no connection. In Tel Aviv, there's nothing. Tel Aviv is absolute zero. The powerhouse, the commercial powerhouse of Eretz Israel is absolutely nothing 125 years ago. Nothing. But it wasn't nothing just because the Jews hadn't settled there. There were no Arabs that settled there. No one lived there. Why would you live in a sand dune? The same way you wouldn't live in the Negev Desert. So the idea, again, that within the land between the river and the sea, that it was always historically populated by people, it's not true. Parts of it were, sure. The irony is that during the, the British mandate, when they attempted to make the partition, they gave the Jews the lands that were the least connected to them. The lands of Yehuda and Shemar were not given to the Jewish people. They were given the lands along the water, 
Given the lands where Tel Aviv is, so from Haifa on down, given the lands of the Negev, sure there were Jews that lived in parts of these for a time, absolutely. But not, that was the least amount of Jewish history there. The most of Jewish history is in Yehuda and Shemar, and that was not given. So again, when it comes to determining the question of whether or not there should be room for a Jewish state, there's certainly a lot of land in the air between the river and the sea that has simply no connection, not to Arabs, not to Jews, to nobody. It was never settled. Why wasn't there room for a Jewish nation-state on the land that historically had nobody living there? Not Jews merely, not Arabs, nobody. And seven, I'll conclude with this, is the common trope today about hearing that Jews in Eretz Yisrael are practicing a form of apartheid. The idea of apartheid, I'm not talking about the dictionary definition of what they are redefining it today, it's irrelevant. But the apartheid of South Africa simply does not exist in Eretz Yisrael, and it is an absolute falschka, it's an absolute falsehood to the highest degree. If you go to South Africa, you would see literally separate, separate facilities for everything. The Arabs, I'm sorry, the, the Black South Africans had no vote. You go to Eretz Yisrael today, and I'm not talking about the lands in Gaza, or the lands in what's known as the West Bank, being the same. They are not the same. It's like if you go to a different country, you have to come in to a country with a checkpoint. That's not called apartheid. But within Eretz Yisrael itself, within the area, let's say if you went to Haifa, or you went to Yerushalayim, you would see tons of Arabs on the street, in the malls, in the universities, in the hospitals. You have Arab doctors and Arab lawyers and Arab judges and Arab firefighters and Arab garbage men and Arab police. You, what's the question? The idea of apartheid? You want to say that maybe some people in Eretz Yisrael view them as second-class citizens? Sure. Do they have the right of return? They do not. Do they have the ability to uh, to vote? 100%. Can they serve in the army? Absolutely. They don't have to because they're not interested in making them be uncomfortable in their towns. But they're allowed to if they would like to, and many have. But the idea that within what's known as the, quote, state of Israel, not occupied territories, not nothing, but within the state of Israel, to say that Israel is practicing apartheid, go on a bus! It's the most lazy accusation. Go to a hospital. Go to the court. Go to the town hall. You'll see. The whole, go to a mall. And you see that the whole place is mingling. And you'll be wondering, where's the apartheid? The idea is not per, it's not so much pernicious as it's foolish and stupid and based upon intellectually lazy people who refuse to see the truth for themselves. We should be zeichen. To be able to remember and understand proudly that our right to the land of Eretz Yisrael is because, like we said, embracious. Now, as Rashi pointed out, from Rabbi Yitzchak, that the whole idea is HaKadosh Baruch the Bari Oilam, he's not Dayna Oilam, and he's given us the land. But, in order to be able to respond to the higher forms of anti-Semitism, if we're ever on a speaker's corner, we have to understand that all of the arguments have responses to, and we should be confident in what our responses are. And if somebody's going to be intellectually objective, they will understand the truth and the veracity of our response. Good